now. Awesome. Well, happy Father's Day, by the way, um, to all of you yes. dads out there. David, you're not a dad yet, right? You only have two no. cats. That counts. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't quite count, no. <laughs> so, um, I was uh, blessed this Father's Day to uh, participate in my youngest son's wedding uh, yesterday. And what a great Father's Day gift to gain a daughter-in-law, uh, the second one. And also to have uh, Laura's parents with us today. And um, so it's really neat to, to have uh, so many connections on Father's Day. And I guess today we're going to continue in Daniel, but really the topic probably applies to us guys um, more than we want to admit. We're going to be talking about uh, this idea and this concept and this struggle that we have with pride. And I know for most of us, um, most of the guys, you guys that I know from our church family, um, you are hard workers and you put a lot into everything that you do. And so finding that balance between uh, being proud of what we've done and going too far is something that we'll probably uh, see a little bit in today's message as well. Uh, so we're going to pick up in the book of Daniel. And uh, I think one of the things we have to realize about Daniel, we're going to be in chapter four. Uh, so while you're getting there, a little bit of intro. Uh, Daniel is a book that's not really meant to give us a complete chronicle of his time in captivity, um, nor is it meant to give us all the details about Nebuchadnezzar's reign, um, or any king for that matter. They're, they're really selected pieces of writing um, that are specific to the nation Israel during their time in exile. And, and as such, they're really meant to highlight a couple things. Um, like for instance, they're meant to highlight the power and the nature of God. They're meant to highlight the, the actions of God uh, and of his chosen people, Israel. And they're also meant to give a hope for the future um, to God's people who are in exile. So when we read chapter four of Daniel, uh, we, we have a bit of a shift here um, that's kind of uh, unique for this type of writing and also for this season of writing. And because the, the book, though it's written to the Israelites and though it's written uh, about the Israelite uh, captivity, their time in exile. It's actually written in Aramaic, which is the language of the Babylonians. And in addition, it's written as if Nebuchadnezzar is writing it himself. So there's a shift from chapter three to chapter four. There's some time that passes. And then there's this shift from Daniel writing or the appearance of Daniel writing to the appearance of Nebuchadnezzar actually writing it. And it starts out with an introduction. It then goes into a story and then it kind of ends with a prologue. So even the way that it's crafted is a bit different than what we've experienced in, in most of our dealings with the exile, with, with exilic uh, type writings. So Daniel chapter four, verses one through three starts out this way. This King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, May your prosperity increase. And I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders of the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty are his wonders. And his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. So the last story we had with Nebuchadnezzar was about him erecting this 90 foot tall statue of gold and demanding that everybody bow down and worship his gods. And now all of a sudden we read this proclamation from Nebuchadnezzar about the most high God and his wonders and what he's done. And it kind of makes you just want to like scratch your head and go, what, what's changed in his life? What would make somebody who just the last time we heard of him, he erected this statue. What would make him change from declaring his excellencies to de declaring the praises of someone he refers to as the highest God? If this was someone today, I think we'd probably, if we saw someone today that had such a drastic change in their life, we, we would probably jokingly in the church circles say, did they find Jesus? Um, you know, it's one of those phrases that we use uh, when something, there's this kind of life change thing that takes place. Uh, and in a similar fashion, we're wondering what has transpired between Nebuchadnezzar and Yahweh that would create such a transformation. Uh, we're kind of left wondering did something happen that we don't know about? Did something take place between the time of the statue and the time of this writing that changed his perspective on everything? And so actually the, the writer has done 
a tremendous job. He's hooked us. And now we have to know the details of what took place. And that's what we pick up with in Daniel chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 18. And maybe, David, you'd like to actually read that for us? Would you want to do that? I would love to. <clears throat> so, yeah, picking up in verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream, and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. This is like deja vu. When the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners came in, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel, named Belteshazzar after the the name of my God, and a spirit of the holy gods is in him, came before me. I told him the dream. Belteshazzar, head of the magicians, because I know you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. So he points out, first of all, you know, life was good at that time. He was at ease in his house. He was flourishing. There was peace in the kingdom. He wasn't concerned at all until this dream happened. There's this disruption to the peace. Um, There's this unrest and anxiety suddenly in his heart. So he calls together all the people who might be able to explain this dream, except for Daniel at first. (laughs) And none of them can help. Notice he actually, he didn't try to, he didn't make them try to tell him what the dream was. He actually told them the dream this time, but they still couldn't interpret it. So he calls Belteshazzar. Uh, So he names him by his Babylonian name, which again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. It was named after one of his gods. Um, And so he still seems to, even though he's seen evidence of Yahweh, God being the most powerful God in his mind, he's just a really powerful God still in this plurality of deities. So he's still a polytheist, seems to worship other gods, but just also recognize that, oh yeah, Daniel has also a spirit of holy gods in him too. He doesn't totally get it. Uh, And then, yeah, it's kind of ironic, this title that Daniel has of being the head of magicians, because magicians weren't really a a part of, they weren't allowed to be a part of Jewish culture. Um, It's a title of power in in this sense but it's also this pagan term that he's uh, that nebuchadnezzar has um placed on daniel so it's kind of interesting yeah and and i think it's pretty interesting too that uh nebuchadnezzar in all of this still refers to this one god as the holy god and i think that that's a distinguishing um i guess marker for the God of Israel that we didn't find him used with any of the other gods, even his own gods. You know, they had their own gods, but for some reason, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is willing to ascribe this title of a holy God. Um, and so even though he realized, gods. <clears throat> what's that? It's still plural though, holy gods. Well, yeah, the plural is kind of disturbing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but that's, you know, he, he obviously uh, is still influenced by his Babylonian culture and all the gods that he has, but he's, but something has obviously uh, changed and he's calling on Daniel because Daniel obviously has been given a gift by the gods in his eyes. And, mm-hmm. and so even in this case, you have Daniel's uh, Babylonian name uh, that's being used and you have this plurality of elders. So you just, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, elders, plurality of gods. <laughs> that's NCF. <laughs> <laughs> this plurality of gods. And, and so what you have is still this Babylonian perspective. This is still the lens of Nebuchadnezzar uh, at the beginning of this story. And I think that that's really cool the way all that is, is played out. So Nebuchadnezzar knows there's something different about Daniel, but obviously he doesn't really know uh, who that God is. Um, and as you pointed out, David, he actually told of the dream this time. And even mm-hmm. then the, the wise guys, all the people he called in couldn't interpret the dream for him. Um, so I, I remember last time we talked about the dream, there were some people upset that we didn't actually go into the details of the dream. So are we going to actually get to read the details of the dream this time? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. You want to read in verse 10, David, read the dream sure. and then I'll pick up after that. Sure. <clears throat> All right. Verse 10. 
he tells Daniel what the dream was. In the visions of my mind, as I was lying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. As I was lying in my bed, <clears throat> excuse me, I also saw in the visions of my mind a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree, chop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with the band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me, but you can, because you have a spirit of the holy gods. <clears throat> so here we go with the holy gods, right? And, mm -hmm. and he calls them out in his, in his name after his own god and says, hey, you, the one who's named after my god, tell me the purpose of my dream, because I know that there's other gods that are in you than just my god. It's so weird. Um, and we're going to get to the interpretation in a minute, but I, I kind of want to focus on a few of the details of the dream itself. Um, there's some imagery in here that I think is really significant. Uh, the first thing is the, the tree imagery. It, it, it's an imagery of a garden, though I'm not convinced that it's the garden that's being referred to here. Um, but it's a, gar it's a tree that's used to symbolize, in this case, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And this tree has branches that reach to the heavens, again, going back to the Babylonian uh, towers and those types of concepts. Uh, its fruit was abundant and it provided food and shelter for birds, animals, and creatures. So even in this, this description of the garden, there is uh, imagery that takes us back to the original garden, but it's, it's a false garden because this garden is gonna be chopped down because it's obviously a garden that wasn't fashioned by God himself. Um, Jesus used similar tree and creature imagery to describe the kingdom of God. And so this idea of using a tree to describe a kingdom is, is obviously uh, one that, that God wants to be intentional about throughout scripture. So Matthew chapter 13 and verse 31 and 32, it says, uh, Jesus presented a parable to them. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. And so even as he described this, kingdom of God. He used the idea of a tree metaphor and animals coming and taking uh, rest under its branches. And, and so this, this imagery is going to keep repeating itself throughout scriptures. Um, but there's this weird uh, term that's really only found here in the book of Daniel three times in the Old Testament and all of them in the book of Daniel. And it's this thing about these watchers and I had to do some research on this because I was like, I don't, I don't know what these watchers are all about. Um, it's really obscure because it's, it's only mentioned here in Daniel. And most of the commentaries kind of like skimmed over it a little bit. Um, some scholars believe it, it related to uh, angels um, or specific uh, messenger angels. Others believe it could be some form of design, divine messenger, possibly even uh, a pre um a preview of the Messiah, uh, like a, a foreshadowing or, or a coming, an early coming of the Messiah to actually make a message. All sorts of different perspectives on this. I'm not even going to pretend that I know what the watchers are. Um, and, and I think that that's okay because it's not 
them. They're not the, the main point of what's happening here. Um, they present this message of judgment. And they tell us in verse 15, they really already tell us that the tree represents a person. Because in verse 15, <laughs> it says, you know, we're going to chop down the tree and then let him. Um, yeah. So they've already made that connection for us. Um, but I think what's interesting to me is that the judgment is being made upon a person from the watchers. Apparently, it's their decree. And, and there's a plurality of them, um, which, again, I, I can't even pretend to understand all of, of what is going on here. Um, but, but apparently, they've been watching. There's this group that's been watching what Nebuchadnezzar has been doing and seeing it that it's, it's an abomination or an affront to Yahweh. And so they have made this decree that this is going to take place. Um, this really has similar overtones to the book of Job. And I think there's other, in this story, there's other overtones to the book of Job as well. The book of Job starts out with a courtroom and, and a case being presented about God. And of course, people would follow God because he blesses them all the time kind of thing. And so there's this, this legal battle going on. And here we have these angels that are bringing this case or these watchers that are bringing this case um, in, in the form of a legal battle. It's, it's pretty, pretty interesting. Um, but again, I, I, I would be careful to, uh, to say that you know what the watchers are um, because I don't, I don't think the scriptures are clear on it. Uh, maybe David has a different perspective, but I'm, I'm going to hold out on that one. No, I don't. <laughs> I know they are mentioned in some other, you know, second temple period writings, but that's about all I know. And I, there's some other weird stuff in there. It's, it's an interesting thing to study, but it's, yeah, that's, I don't have any other insights right now for you. <laughs> oh, come on, David. So, uh, and, and really we're given from this uh, passage, we're given kind of the, the meaning for this lesson, the meaning for this story, why this exists. Um, and, it, and it really comes down to verse 17. And it said, this word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms. And he gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. And, and so therefore you have the, the message of why this is going to happen, what the story is about, um, the purpose of the story. And the purpose is so that we would understand the relationship between the God of Israel, between Yahweh, the most high God, and the rest of creation in the form of, of kingdoms and nations and rulers and, and uh, people who are in charge of things. Um, so they've already stated why this is going to happen. So that's the dream. Uh, what about the interpretation? Um, and I think Daniel's in a tough spot right here. So in, in chapter four, verse 19, um, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was stunned for a moment, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. But he answered, my lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. So we have this transition, um, and, and there's a, a literary transition that takes place here. First, Daniel's Hebrew name is introduced. So the king still calls him by his Babylonian name, but the narration switches to the name of Daniel's Hebrew name. And also the perspective of the storyteller changes. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar is not telling the story at this point. So up until this point, Nebuchadnezzar has been the one who's been uh, telling us what's going on, but now it shifts. And in verse 19, we have this narrator who appears to tell the story. Um, and Daniel's afraid. And, and I can imagine two reasons why Daniel would be afraid. Um, I think Daniel was really actually concerned about the king. Because as a follower of Yahweh, uh, it's, it should be in our nature, because it is his nature, to care for others, even those that don't acknowledge God. Um, so I think that there's a genuine concern that Daniel has for uh, Nebuchadnezzar um, as someone who is made in the image of God, as, as all mankind is. Uh, but second, I think there's probably a fear in presenting bad news to the king 
because it could cost you your life. I mean, who wants to stand before the most powerful man in, in the known world at that time, most powerful human being man at that time, and tell him that, um, yeah, it's going to get bad for you. Uh, so I, I think that there's some legit fear there to go before the king and say, you know, king, um, I don't know if I want to tell you this dream. And I don't know if that's why the magicians uh, also backed out before the other magicians, that they had a clue what it was about. And just like, I'm not going to tell the king. You tell the king. I'm not going to tell the king. Let's get Daniel. Daniel will tell the king. <laughs> and so I, I don't know if that's what took place, but I think there's two reasons why Daniel would be afraid. Um, but then he actually launches into the interpretation. And, and maybe I'll have you so much a better reader than I am, David. Maybe I'll have you read the interpretation. <laughs> Okay, so this is starting in verse 20 then. Yes. <clears throat> Daniel says, The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and was visible to the whole earth, and whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals lived, and in its branches the birds of the sky lived. That tree is you, your majesty. For you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky. And your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. The king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree's stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Yeah, yeah, boy, that's a, that's a tough thing to uh, present to the king. So. So Daniel says, I, I, I hope this happens to your enemies and not to you. And I'm going to give you some advice, King. I'm sure that that was not common practice for, uh, for the magicians and wise people of the day to say to the king, so King, let me tell you what to do. Um, but Daniel obviously felt, uh, again, I think compassion for Nebuchadnezzar to even say, here's, here's what I would recommend. I know this God, and here's what I think you should do. Um, and so in this interpretation, Daniel also clarifies for us a bit that though we read earlier that the decree came from the watchers, from the holy ones, that this is what's going to happen. We, we also read from Daniel that this was a decree from the most high God. So the holy ones and the watchers were acting on behalf of the most high God. Um, but that phrase, again, the most high in Daniel is another unique word. It appears about 10 times in the Old Testament, again, all in Daniel. Um, there's another form of it that appears four times, and all those are in Daniel. Uh, and this passage, um, the, the phrase carries with it the idea of being um, superior or in the highest. And in, in reference to the dream, it appears to be a direct statement that though Nebuchadnezzar has been majestic, God is more so. And though Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is great, God's is greater. And though Neb, Nebuchadnezzar has many gods, Yahweh is superior to all other gods. Um, Kind of like uh, we, we had pizza last night and I find that we rate our pizza experiences. I don't know about you guys, but we have like, there's, there's okay pizza. There's like pizza. If there was no other pizza left on the earth, I would eat it. And then there's pizza. That's like, Oh, that's good pizza. And then we start getting into, but then there's this place, you know, and they're like the best pizza. They're like above everybody else and nobody else even compares. So we have this idea of superiority when we're ranking things all the time. We do it from food to cars, to, to all sorts of computers, operating systems, phones. Um, this idea of superiority is, is like saying, okay, there's, there's this level, there's this level, and then there's this. And there's nothing else that's really even close to it. It's just like that much better than everything else that's out there. And so this most high God, we would probably not say most high. That's not like a common phrase for us. We would say like the highest or the, 
the most important or the the most significant or the the, the most superior um, the best of the best uh, would be how kind of how we would phrase it uh, in today's um, vernacular and so Daniel keeps referring to this phrase of the most high God the, the God who is above all the others whose kingdom is above all the others so here's Nebuchadnezzar's massive kingdom that reaches to the heavens and expands spreads out across the entire earth but that's nothing compared to the kingdom that Yahweh has which is mm -hmm. so much better um, so I'm sure that didn't probably sit w too well with Nebuchadnezzar either because he was yeah. just looking out <laughs> over his kingdom and admiring how expansive his kingdom was and, and how much he had and what he had accomplished and then these messengers are going yeah that's nothing you got nothing on God. So it's one other thing that is interesting to me there, Daniel uses this phrase, most high God, but he's not denying the existence of other gods. So, so what's up with that? Um, and I know this isn't in the notes or anything, but I think it's just really interesting because even in the, in the Hebrew, you know, the word gods um, can refer to just, any other spiritual beings, which is why you find so often the phrase Yahweh God or Lord God to, to specify which spiritual being they're referring to. So, you know, and obviously we believe in angels and other spiritual beings. And Jesus even said that we are spiritual beings using that same type of word um, that in English, the word God kind of has taken on a different <clears throat> meaning Whereas here, you know, even those watchers, whatever they were, could be can, could be referred to as gods. But it's in in our um, in English, we would maybe refer to that as lowercase g versus uppercase g. But they didn't really have that distinction, so they would use names to distinguish. And so, he, by saying most high, he's not denying the existence of other spiritual beings that might be out there, but he's saying that there's one that is above all the others and who has all the power in the universe and he is on a, he's on a kind of a different category. He's on an, another level. So I think that's an important, important thing to recognize the um, even the ancient Jewish mindset was not that God is the only spiritual being or even powerful spiritual being. Cause there were angels and, and evil spiritual beings as well. So there's that reality of a spiritual world that is very obvious in Daniel and even throughout the rest of the book and his visions and all that. But, just interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that message takes place and you've got to think that hopefully that message sunk into Nebuchadnezzar, but the story continues and it still continues from the narrator's perspective in verse 28. It says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared that the kingdom has departed from you and you will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals and you will feed on the grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to whomever he wants. And at that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from people and he ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So though Daniel had recommended uh, repentance um, for Nebuchadnezzar, you know, change and do this. Uh, God waited 12 months to carry out his judgment. And we could view that a lot of different ways, but I, I think um, that I would prefer to view that as an act of mercy, um, a, a chance for Nebuchadnezzar to actually repent. Um, but but th this part of the story is... Uh, is not told from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, probably because Nebuchadnezzar was not in his right mind and he was not willing to repent. And so we're stepping back and looking at what is happening from, from 
God's perspective and from the bigger picture of what's taking place, not just from Nebuchadnezzar's lenses at this time. And so Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent. And he says, look at what I've done for my name, for my glory, my kingdom and my greatness has done all of this. And so God pronounces this punishment on him. So a lot of people have had discussions about uh, what exactly happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, it's really interesting because when I started researching it, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole. And apparently, David, you had the same thing when you were reading through it and researching it. You're like, yeah, that was a rabbit hole. Yeah, Um, definitely. Kind of disturbing rabbit hole. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you actually Google uh, uh, Boanthropy, uh, B-O-A-N-T-H-R-O-P-Y, Boanthropy, it's actually a documented form of psychosis um, where somebody believes that they're an animal and they actually uh, eat grass and and act like uh, cattle. And it's been documented. It still happens today. And if you Google it, you'll find that even secular materials reference uh, Nebuchadnezzar, as this is probably what condition Nebuchadnezzar had, where he went out of his mind and actually thought he was a, a, a cow, an ox, whatever, and just started eating grass. No, I, I couldn't find any documented cases that are actually recent. So when you say it still happens today, I, I haven't found any sources confirming, you know, recent cases of it but there are other documented cases throughout history um for you know just not in the last you know maybe 100 years or so (laughs) but there are other people who you know have are well documented by secular you know sources who just believe they were some sort of cattle and it's actually there's a broader term zoanthropy which is believing that you are some type of animal so then boanthropy is just kind of that subcategory so yeah it's this bizarre extremely rare but documented form of mental psychosis that's yeah so it just kind of proves that yeah it's even just from a biological standpoint it's possible um even though it could have been a purely supernatural intervention by God as well. But it's just kind of interesting to see that. Yeah. And like again, said, the fact that they actually all, like, I found the same thing. Every, you can't Google boanthropy and not, or boanthropy and not see Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> referenced in whatever article it is. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. The guy gets kind of bad at the same time. Um, <laughs> that's you know, if you're, if you're Nebuchadnezzar, right? It's like this <laughs> yeah. way you're known. Yep. Uh, yep. But I, I think there's again parts of the story that are purposely left vague, um, and and uh, and maybe it's because we know we're going to want to dig into it more. So like, I know David and I have gotten sidetracked on the number seven uh, at times, and we love studying the number seven through things. And so here we have in this passage uh, with the dream and then the interpretation of the dream that he's going to be in this state of uh, like a wild animal for seven periods of time. So a lot of commentaries translate that as seven years automatically. Um, and so they would, they would say that these events took place probably like the original dream about 10 years before the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and they believe. And then, you know, the, there was about a year before he, be, it was a year before he became uh, like an animal. And then after seven years, he regained his, his kingdom again. And then a couple of years after that, he, you know, he died and the next person took over, but we don't know that to be true. Um, so I, again, I don't want to jump out there and say, this is seven years. What I find interesting is it says after 12 months and there's a specific time frame and we started out Daniel in a specific year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And so we have some very specific year markers and month markers. And yet in this particular situation, we have seven periods of time. So I'm going to say, keep it vague. Uh, if they wanted to say years, they could have said years because we know that they have the word for years. If they wanted to say seasons or months, we, we don't know. It's periods of time. It could have been seasons. It could have been years. All we know is it was long enough for his hair to grow like feathers and his nails to become like bird's claws. Um, so it's definitely longer than seven days, probably much longer than seven months. Um, but we don't know exactly if it was what that time frame is. Um, I think it's interesting that we pause just for a minute here and say, what 
was wrong with what Nebuchadnezzar did. Um, because I think of uh, what Nebuchadnezzar did, he, he looked out at his kingdom and he was impressed with what he had done. And I don't know, if, if you read Ecclesiastes, I mean, Ecclesiastes really kind of says it. There's nothing better than you could do than enjoy your work and take pleasure in what you've done. And so, so where did Nebuchadnezzar go wrong? And, and how do you reconcile this idea of Ecclesiastes, of um, enjoying what you have and taking pride in your work and, and, and those types of things versus going so far that God needs to punish you or discipline you. You want to speak in on that for a second, David? Like, wh where did he go wrong on that? What's, yeah, like what's it, the line? I definitely don't think it was wrong for him to enjoy his, his wealth, his kingdom, uh, the, the fruits of his labor, as, as Ecclesiastes would put it. Um, it's, it's not wrong to enjoy those things. The, the distinction is that he was taking credit for those things, not, beyond just enjoying it saying this is what i've done for myself in my kingdom as opposed to giving credit to god nebuchadnezzar didn't recognize that everything he had in his kingdom was because god gave it to him god allowed him to have it um and sometimes even even if it involves hard work on our behalf that hard work would be nothing if it weren't for god allowing us to get fruit from it uh, so I think that's that's really the the big distinction to be made, um, and uh, it could be argued is where Solomon kind of made the same mistake back when he took his downfall. Um, it was a similar transition from giving God the glory to taking glory for himself, um, and that's a pretty pretty common pattern I see, and it's very much a human. It's a common human nature tendency to want to take credit take the glory for things ourselves instead of giving glory to god um but everything we have is is from god yeah and we could even trace that back to david king david um yeah. not you david we trace yep. that back to king david when he numbered the armies of israel because we have a whole book of numbers which talks about the numbers of the nation and how many soldiers they had and how many fighting men they had and, and david's fighting men were numbered but then there was that time where David numbered the armies and it was in this arrogance of look at the army I have amassed, look at what mm -hmm. I have done as opposed to um, recognizing God as the God of armies. Um, Which then brought a plague on the people because God needed to teach him a lesson. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think for us, um, so, so, so guys, I'm jumping a little bit ahead because this is something I want to talk at the end, but I want to pause for a second and say, Hey, Hey guys, uh, and, and, and women, but you know, it's, it's Father's Day, so I'm just going to single out the men here for a minute. Um, it's easy for us to want to take credit for the things that we work hard for, for the things that we invest so much time in, whether that's our families or our jobs or uh, our possessions. Um, and, and while it's okay to enjoy those things and it's okay to, to recognize and be thankful for what we have, um, where Nebuchadnezzar crossed the line is where I think all of us struggle uh, at that line of look what I have done versus look what God has done. And, and it's okay to say that I've been blessed, but to recognize that it hasn't been of my own doing alone. Yes, I've worked hard, but I only have what I have because of the goodness of God. I only have what I have because God has graciously given me that, whether it's the intellect to be able to do my job, the, the physical strength to do my job, uh, whatever, or or just the blessing of having that position or those things, all of it comes from God. And that's the lesson that God is trying to get through, I think, to Nebuchadnezzar at this point. Because Nebuchadnezzar's struggle was, look at my kingdom. Um, most of us don't have kingdoms nowadays. Um, I mean, there used to be a saying, a man's, you know, a man's home is his castle, you know, and he's the king kind of thing. But we don't even get that anymore. Um, so we don't have kingdoms per se, physical kingdoms, but I think we do build up kingdoms in our education, in our vocations, in, uh, in our relationships where we can try to, where we can inadvertently build kingdoms to ourselves that this, to, to try to display our glory and our work and our uh, creativity as opposed to recognizing that it's all because of the gift of God. Mm -hmm. um, so 
And I think that can be, you know, our, our estates, our houses, you know, the things that we amass or even our families, um, we can have wonderful, beautiful families and that's a great thing. But if you, um, idolize that or, or don't give God the credit for that, um, or even, you know, our, our online presences and our social media profiles, um, our businesses, you know, all these different things are kind of parallel to the idea of amassing a kingdom, even though we have different, it looks different in our culture and we have different words for it. Those all play into that same concept of pride. Definitely. Definitely. So let's see how this matter ends in uh, verse 34. We, we actually have the, the narration uh, transitions back to Nebuchadnezzar. So again, you, you have this perspective shift. We started out with Nebuchadnezzar and then he, he told us a statement, an introductory statement. And then after that, he told us the story of the dream that he had. And then it shifted to the narrator perspective. And now after he's been an animal for uh, seven periods of time, or as we're seeing that the, the pronouncement was made, we're shifting back to the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel chapter four, verse 34. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. And then I praised the most high and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom and my advisors and my nobles sought me out and I was reestablished over my kingdom and even more greatness came to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heavens because all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Um, so this is like amazing. This is that, you know, did he find Jesus? Well, he, Jesus wasn't around yet, but he certainly found Yahweh at this point. And, and we get to the conclusion of this, of this prologue at the end. And we're given the full message that was really hinted at in the beginning with the introduction. He said, listen, I praised the most high God and I honored and glorified him because his rule and his kingdom are forever. And he is sovereign over all creation, including mankind. Uh, and he is blameless. No one can make a charge against him, which is, I think this is something we struggle with today in our culture. You know, why would God allow this to happen? It's like taking a charge against his name. Why would God do this? And Nebuchadnezzar is saying, listen, you can't, you can't stop what he's going to do, and you don't even have the right to question him. He does what he wants to do, and he's true and just in what he does. And this is coming from someone who is not part of the chosen nation of Israel. This is not one of the priests that's standing up, or, or Moses that's standing up, or Abraham that's standing up. This is a man who erected a gold idol, a gold statue 90 feet tall, and put it up in a plane, and wanted people to worship his gods. And now he's saying, listen, this is a true and a just and a right God. Um, he's basically reaffirming, I think, what Solomon had already declared in Proverbs. Proverbs 19.21 says, listen, many plans are in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's decree that will prevail. Um, and I think similar to Job, after this humbling encounter, Nebuchadnezzar was given back what he lost and even more. Because at the end of this encounter, he recognized God uh, in a greater way than he did before and acknowledged God before those around him. And so I think it's interesting that you, again, you have these echoes of the book of Job in this book of Daniel, um, which, and, and echoes of Proverbs. So you have references back to the garden. You have things that correspond with the stories we've had with David as king. You have uh, lessons that are being taught that were presented by Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. You have parallels that go with the book of, of Job, which is one of the part of the wisdom literature. And all of this still, though, is pointing to a future that's consistent with the whole story of God, which is the fact that they're in exile now, but God is going to call them out and establish his kingdom. Um, so we'll talk about that in just a minute here. Uh, but, but God's purpose was fulfilled. We said that the purpose of this sentence, according to the watchers, 
was so that uh, Nebuchadnezzar would praise God as the one who's in control. And we see that in verse 37. You know, now I have been Nebuchadnezzar, uh, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens because all of his works are true, and his ways are just, and he's able to humble those who walk in pride. And so he's saying, I'm praising God and not myself. I'm acknowledging God's kingdom and not my own. I acknowledge his supremacy over all mankind and creation as opposed to my own. And he is right in what he does, even in humbling us. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar is obviously a changed man. And in our opening dialogue, we saw a changed man, but now we know what took place in his life. He encountered a holy God. And when we encounter a holy God, and when we're humbled by his greatness and our brokenness, it should result in us being willing to admit that he is God and that we need him, that he is God and, and we would be doing what's best to submit to him and to follow him. And, and when that happens, it will change us. And the others around us might wonder what happened to make us so different. And that's what an encounter with a holy God can do. And that's what we read about in the introduction to this book when Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, I'm here to tell you about the wonders of the holy God, of the most high God. Let me tell you the amazing things he has done. And we started out saying, man, what's happened in his life that made something this, this man's so different. And that's what ought to happen in our lives when we encounter a holy God and see what he does. And I've, and I've learned, though, that I'm, I'm a bit particular. Um, okay, let me, let me explain this. When God elevates us and makes us successful, like he did Daniel and his friends in Daniel chapter 1, it's easy to bless God. It's easy to praise God because he's blessed us. When we experience God's protection and we experience God keeping us from harm, it's easy to bless God. And that's what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But when was the last time you and I considered that the discipline of God is also something to praise God for? Nebuchadnezzar is praising God for being humbled for being humiliated in front of all of his nobles and his nation and his great kingdom and being brought so low that he was like an animal. When was the last time we thanked God and praised God for his willingness to judge us rightly, for his willingness to discipline us, for his willingness to uh, work in our lives, to humble us so that we can remember who he is and make sure that our lives are not lived in opposition to him, but for him. Um, and I think the more that we recognize that humbling and that discipline as a gift from God, uh, the more we'll understand his compassion and his love and his mercy and be willing to offer it to others as well. Um, we talked about Solomon's writing. Another one of Solomon's writings talk about this in Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. It says, my child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. I thought that was a pretty appropriate verse for us to ponder on Father's Day, um, that when our father disciplines us and corrects us, uh, it's for our own good. And he does it because he loves us. Um, you listening, kids? He... <laughs> What's that? I said, are you listening, kids? <laughs> right, right. Yes, all of, you, all of you kids who are listening right now with your parents, I want you to look at your parents and say, thank you for disciplining me <laughs> and do it without choking. <laughs> so so the, the lesson of Daniel, again, one of the reasons we love Daniel is because this, this book of exile stories is a book of stories that relate to us, um, that definitely encourage us. But remember, it was first and foremost written as a book to encourage and to instruct the Israelites who were in exile. And at this time, around this time, it's somewhere about halfway through the 70 year um, exile that they would be, uh, that they've been promised that they're going to be in. And for the exiles, um, I mean, their new norm 
we talk about that a lot today with all the things that have happened in our culture, what the new norm is like. Their new norm is living under Nebuchadnezzar and serving a Babylonian king who worships all these other gods who's changed their names. And so being reminded that this new norm is really not the long-term norm that God intends would have been a great comfort uh, for them as well as even for us today. Um, God still had a plan for, for the nation of Israel. And as God humbled Nebuchadnezzar and said, listen, you think your kingdom is great? I have a kingdom that's much better and I rule uh, much more justly and my kingdom will last forever would be a message of hope for a people who were living outside of their country, apart from their temple, without the opportunity to worship God the way that they once had, separated from the presence of God, who kicked them out away from his presence because of their sin. And yet he's giving them a message of hope that, listen, my kingdom will last forever. This kingdom will be established. In other words, he's saying the Messiah is still going to come. I'm still going to restore you. And I think that that message was meant to help encourage them through this season because there's gonna get, it's going to get harder for them in some ways uh, as the years go on. Um, so the Messiah uh, will usher in what the, what the exilic and the post-exilic Jews will be looking for, and that's the kingdom of God. And that's the message that we hear Jesus bringing, isn't it? When Jesus shows up on the scene in the New Testament, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So even here in, in this time with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was not living for God, but learning about Yahweh, uh, we have this reminder that the kingdom of God is yet to be established and that the Messiah will come to establish that at some point. Um, so a great message of hope for the Israelites, but I think still a message of hope for you and me today. Um, the kingdoms of this earth, whether they're political or of our own making, are not going to last. Uh, the seasons that we're in are not going to last. Um, the, the norms, the new norms that we have now are not going to last. In the end, it's God's mission and it's God's purpose and it's God's kingdom that will prevail. Um, so it's a reminder that we should be vigilant to watch out for pride, um, especially when we think that our accomplishments, careers, education, homes, et cetera, uh, are, are significant because our kingdoms are not going to last, only God's will. And that what we do with our lives, if it's apart from the spirit of God working through us, is a wasted effort. And it needs, to, it needs to be, our lives need to be meshed up with the spirit's work to do what God wants. And if you've been in part of the First John study, we have this reminder in First John chapter two that Seth was teaching us about in verses 15 through 17. Says, do not love this world nor the things it offers. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure and a craving for everything that we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. But those are not from the Father, but are of this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So we're reminded by the disciple who spent the most time with the Messiah, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're reminded uh, that what matters is doing what pleases God. So now we're back to that whole theme of the wisdom literature, the fear of the Lord. Now we're back to the message on Mount, um, from Mount Sinai um, and, the ten, and the, the ten words, the ten commandments. It comes back to what do we live for and do we acknowledge that everything that we have whether it's god providing for us daily with the manna of, of the wilderness that the israelites had or god protecting us like he did the israelites from the red sea or god leading us like he did with the pillar of fire and a cloud or god's presence like he showed us in the temple we have those same um, lessons in our own life that god provides that god protects that god leads and the question is, do we acknowledge him in those roles or can we have we become like Nebuchadnezzar where we're just too proud to admit that God has done those things? And so our challenge, our challenge, men, is to is to strive to do the best that we can with what God has given us, but to make sure that we're doing it following his lead and that we're doing it, giving him the credit and him the glory 
And it's okay to take pride in one's work. And it's okay to enjoy what God has given you. But it's not okay to take the credit for what God has done. Um, but to make sure that he always gets the credit for all that he does. And so I think that's one of our, our big takeaways from this particular, um, for us today in this particular story uh, of Daniel. Um, for the Jews that were in exile, they probably weren't, uh, they were probably okay with that lesson um, because they didn't have much, they were exiles, but they were still looking for the hope where they would be redeemed. So we have multiple lessons. And I think as, as Sunday school, you know, Sunday school class material, we want to focus on how it applies to us. Um, but we also have to remember that this is a bigger picture for a people group at that time to help them through the season that's coming up. So uh, any other thoughts you wanted to add to that, David, or, or reflections? Um, it, you kind of brought up this idea that per, there's the word pride um, can be used in a positive sense, and it can also be used in a sense where it's just this, a really bad sin that is the root of a lot of corruption and evil <clears throat> and that's just it, it's a good thing to remember and it took me back to um one of the last real like embodiments of pride that we have had in the old testament was when we looked at the story of david and goliath and goliath was this literally larger than life embodiment of pride and boastfulness and he was he came out boasting about how strong he was and and then you have David juxtaposed up against him. He was kind of an embodiment of humility, but he had so much pride in his God and in what he knew his God could do that he fearlessly, you know, confronted that giant. Um, so, and it's just an interesting thing to, to ponder and think about. And yeah, there's a healthy pride and there's, um, and it's, it's good to be proud of, what you've done, proud of your parents, proud of your kids, you know, those are, those are healthy emotions to experience. Um, but you always have to check your, your motivations, your, your perspectives and who you're giving credit to. Um, I'm just kind of repeating what you said, but that's what I was reflecting on. And, you know, I do think also the, the, the issue of pride, it can manifest in all different sorts of ways. It can come from all different things, but we tend to see it as being especially tempting for any, people in any sort of leadership position. So none of us are kings of kingdoms and castles, but many of us are leaders in some capacity, whether it's, you know, at work or in our families or, or, you know, wherever it is, most of us find ourselves in leadership positions of some kind um, at some point in our lives. And that's, I think, where it's most important to be, or especially important anyway, to be vigilant in checking our, our hearts for pride. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Thanks, David. So at this point, um, what I'd like to do is I just wanna um, have us pray together. And uh, I, wanna, I wanna pray for um, the, the, the dads, uh, that we would be able to find the balance between being proud of what, what uh, God has allowed us to do, I guess is the way I would phrase it. Um, I don't want to say proud of our accomplishments uh, because our accomplishments apart from God, and then I'm back into that arrogance. But, but I think a healthy way is to look at it as, you know, what God has allowed us to do or equipped us to do and just pray for God's blessing on those men and then close our time out from there. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are uh, a just God, that you are a holy God that your hand, uh, that your plan cannot be stopped and that no one can truly question you uh, and nobody can truly bring a charge against you and say that you have acted unjustly because you are just in all of your ways. And we praise you as we're reminded of the way that you uh, bless us. We praise you for your protection and your care, uh, but we also praise you for those times in our lives where you discipline us because it, it demonstrates your amazing love and your grace, uh, that you would not just bring a charge against us and carry out the punishment, but that you would give us uh, the opportunity to repent before you and to be uh, taught by you and to be uh, restored by you. And we just pray that as, uh, as we take these lessons to heart, that you would 
show us the balance between being uh, proud of what uh, we have around us, but also making sure that we're that our pride is viewed through the lens of your gracious hand and your work and your accomplishment. Um, that as we thank God, as we, as we thank you for our children, we realize that whether or not they are living in a way that is pleasing to you um, is ultimately up to you. That that good parents can only be good parents because of a great God. Um, and so we pray for the parents that are listening today that you would help them to be good parents that model you and that model your practices in your heart. Uh, we thank you for the things that we enjoy, whether it's the technology to meet today, the food that we have, the homes that we have, cars to drive. Um, and we acknowledge that the things that we own are yours not ours. And we are just stewards. We are so grateful for the ways that you have provided. And I pray that for the, for the men that are listening today, uh, that as they uh, work hard and as they study hard and as they uh, lead uh, their families, those that have families, Father, that you would help them to take pride in what they do, but that their pride would be just saturated in the truth and in the acknowledgement and the reality of they can only do what you've what what they can because you have empowered them and they can only truly accomplish what you want as they humbly follow your lead father we pray that your kingdom would come that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven and that you would use us to do that today we pray for your name and for your sake amen amen I want to thank